You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. And so, if you're willing and able this morning when you get to Exodus 17, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Wow, that was great. Man, for the nine o'clock service? Come on. All right, off to a good start. Uh, my name is Ty Gaston. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to be able to uh, bring the word to you guys this morning. Uh, like Eric said, we are continuing our series through the book of Exodus, and we got a lot of work to do uh, this morning. I, I almost, in preparation of this, court gave me some, some leeway to stop in the middle of the text and do the, the second half later. Um, I felt like the story was better rounded out by just doing the whole thing all the way through. So um, all that to say, there's a lot to do. So we're just going to jump right in. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get moving. Father God, we come before you today, and before we look at your word, before we move forward with the service, allow our hearts to rest before you. Allow our hearts to be at peace. If there's any waves or ripples throughout our life that are uh, causing distress, God, we pray that you would still the waters. Allow us, God, to, to see how great, how wonderful you are. God, it's only through your word that we can come to that conclusion. It's only by your spirit that we would lay down our own selves and lean into you. So, God, would you, uh, would you help us to do that this morning? Would you help us to look at your word? Would you help us to apply it to our lives and to walk in obedience and forever and ever turn our gazes towards you? It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Um, I, I talk about this often, and I'll continue to do so as long as I am allowed to have a face mic. Uh, but I, uh, I have been in the Coast Guard for the last seven years. Uh, not seven, sorry, 11 years. Um, Four of that were active duty on the front end, and, and one of the things that became a, an early part of, uh, of my routine in life, uh, really my, my wife and I's routine, but I'll get that in a moment. Uh, we, before we had kids, we really got good at Call of Duty together. Uh, and, and I know that sounds weird, my wife is a closet gamer, 
and she's incredible. I mean, she's incredible. So, uh, but it all started when we were, uh, whenever I was stationed on the boat, and we would get underway, and th- there's really nothing to, to do. Like, once you get offshore a couple miles out, you start to lose cell phone service. There's really nothing to do except either uh, watch staticky TV that may come in on the satellite or may not, or sit there, look at blue water that literally never ends, or, and get seasick, or you could play Call of Duty with your friends on the boat. So, so I, I got, long story short, I got really good at it, really good. Now, my wife got way better, and it was embarrassing, but she was really good. I'm talking like, she would, when we would play together, she would never die. And it's, some people do that just by like camping off in the corner and peppering, peppering people across the map. Not her. She's running around like an assassin, and I don't know how she did it. It was incredible. She would memorize routes around the map on where people would go, look at trends of spawn spots. for pe- Anyways, it was, she's ridiculous. But we, uh, as soon as we had our son Caleb, they came, up with the, they came out with the next Call of Duty, and we bought it thinking that we were going to be able to like do the same, put the same kind of effort in. It took one day where we were like, we can't do this. Like, we can't spend eight hours a day doing this anymore. We have a son we, we got to care for. Uh, that is, it's irresponsible. So we ended up uh, literally going the next day back and trading, trading it back in, getting our money back. So, uh, but all that to say, since my son has gotten older, it's come full circle. So now he, we have an Xbox 360, and he likes to play Call of Duty. And I get to flex on him a little bit. And so... We, uh, one of the things that we do is it's just him, him and I get in the game and we go one-on-one. We get, the, we get the smallest map and we try to outwit one another. Well, he's still not very good at it, um, and I have regained my skills, to say the least. And, and so what I will do, uh, and this happened just the other night, is I'll throw, um, I'll throw flashbangs or grenades over, over across him. I won't try to hit him, but I'll throw it past him because he'll turn around and thinking that I'm over there and then guess what? Daddy's right behind you. And, uh, and, and, and I win. And every single time he's like, how, how I don't understand. And, uh, it's a funny story and we really do enjoy doing it. And I really love owning my son. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing about having a boy. Um, my, my son and daughter are so different. My daughter wants cuddles and hugs to bed. My son wants an elbow to go to sleep. It's, uh, it's, it's just how we live our life. Uh, but this, this game of diversion to win is not just isolated to a video game. It's not just isolated to sports. It's something that we see often in a lot of our lives, especially when it comes to the spiritual realm. And what we will see in this passage today is that we also have a very real enemy who would love nothing more than to divert our attention away from Christ. And my goal in our time today is to walk away with three things. It's one, that we have a real enemy that we cannot possibly win against without the Lord's help. Two, the only way forward is together as the church, united with one another. And then three, we must walk in obedience and trusting Christ, the unifi- who is the unifying rally point for all Christians. Okay, let's jump in. Exodus 17, verse number eight says this. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. All right, we're going to stop there. So since the Israelites have left Egypt, the only enemies that the Israelites had faced up to this point has been themselves. 
So in other words, they were allowing the struggles of their time uh, to get in between them and to cause division. So the, difficult, the difficulties that they faced at Marah, the desert of sin, uh, Massah, and Meribah were all caused by their own disbelief and discontentment. So everything up to this moment was simply because they just didn't believe in God. They didn't trust him. And, and in not trusting him, it caused division amongst them. It led to grumbling against their leaders and against God. And as a result, they were divided. They were discouraged. Now, here in Exodus 17, 8, they have an outside enemy. It's their first one since Egypt, and his name's Amalek. And we don't know much about Amalek. The only thing that we know is that he has come from the, uh, the lineage of Esau. That's all that we're at. He's a grandson of Esau. And so we have, to, we have to remember that that's the line that he follows. Esau was, what does the Bible say? It says that God hated him. Jacob he loved, Esau he hated and so Amalek falls in that same line. And Amalek was bent on hurting God's people. So his people, the Amalekites, were a nomadic people. They, they traveled all around, all over the place. And they lived partly by attacking other population groups and plundering them for their own wealth, their own well-being. The Amalekites were also one of the first people to domesticate camels and ride on them like horses. And it's because the camels were faster. They were quicker. They were more swift. And so they would use uh, this to basically do surprise attacks, to take them off guard. Now, we don't know much about Amalek, but we do know that the Lord despised him. And we see that in Deuteronomy 25. We learn it here. Uh, Verses 13 through 19, it says this. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, these next couple verses are really important. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, that, phrase, that sentence is going to frame the next portion of text. Verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for your inheritance you possess, you shall, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And we'll come back to that at the very end of the sermon. But... The point was not even that Amalek attacked God's people because there were a lot of people throughout the Old Testament that attacked God's people. That wasn't the point. The point was that he did so dishonestly, that he went after the weak and he decided to not only go after the weak and weary, but he would do so in a way that they couldn't even see him coming. And so God saw that and said, that man is an abomination to me. Just like Esau, he's hated Because of the way he lives his life, he did not fear God. That was Amalek's sin. That was what God did not like and did not honor. He attacked the people of God from the rear when they were faint of heart and weary. Now, this is important because if we remember, this is how sin started in the first place. Adam and Eve are walking throughout the garden. I wouldn't necessarily call them faint and weary of heart, but I will say that they were caught off guard. Now, what's, what's interesting about this is that the enemy chose to inhabit the body of a serpent to deceive them. 
it wasn't just the deceptive words and turning truth to basically get them to look away from God, but it was also that he chose an animal that they would have trusted. In fact, in the Bible, it says that we must be wise as serpents because they were both sly and wise. And so when they looked, and and serpents, when they were created, snakes, when they were created, they were part of God's creation. They were determined to be good. And so a snake moving throughout the garden, Adam and Eve would have looked at that snake and said, oh, wise as a serpent. Yeah, for sure. That's great. That's a good thing. So they they would have been none the wiser. They would have thought nothing of it. The snake itself was an act of deception, just being a snake. And so what what the enemy does is he comes in and he slithers in, no pun intended, and he makes you think that he's on your side. In other words, you lower your guard. You're vulnerable. So in that moment, Adam and Eve may not be weak and weary of heart, but they are vulnerable. And they're taken advantage of. He comes from behind them and gets them to disobey God. And what enters into the world? Sin and death. The enemy only wants death. And we see the same thing that happens from Amalek. So we don't necessarily know why Amalek attacked Israel. But it's hard to disconnect the story apart from the previous one that Eric preached on last week. That that entire encounter with Amalek, although it seems random, seems to be a response to the question posed by the grumbling Israelites in verse number seven. Is the, and, and they ask, is the Lord among us? So they're grumbling about water. They're grumbling about food up to this point. They're mad that Moses brought them out of Egypt. They would have taken slavery over what they have now. And they ask the question, is God even among us? And this whole interaction between God and his people, between Amalek coming in and God having to rescue them, seems like a response to that. It's hard to disconnect it. It's almost like Amalek was meant to be there. So he could have very well just been trying to plunder and take advantage of God's people. It's very well that he could have heard what happened in Egypt, known that they've been traveling throughout the desert, known that they were going to be weak and weary of heart, and decided, I'm going to take advantage of them. It also simultaneously could be that God was trying to remind his people that he's with them. So there's two things going on there. But we have to remember that we have a real enemy. Just like the people of God had a real enemy in front of them in Amalek and the Amalekites. They had spent all of their time before that arguing with each other. And they were not the enemy. See, the enemy tries to convince us, especially now, that people in the church are the problem. That our brothers and sisters in Christ, they're the problem. Well, can you believe this? He's a Calvinist. Can you believe this? She's an Arminian. Can you believe this? That they, uh, they like elders. Can you believe this? That why can't women be elders? There, there's a lot of things that people just try to cause division over and get in arguments over. And really, we end up creating enemies of one another. And the enemy is behind us laughing, saying, ah, I get to sneak in behind you. I've deceived them to think that these are the main issues not realizing that we have a real enemy in front of us that we've completely forgotten. And he has snuck in behind the back door. When God's people are embroiled in internal controversy against one another, 
especially amongst the people in Israel like we, we see here, God permits an attack from their real enemy to awaken them from their spiritual slumber. That just as, just as Israel had real enemies on all sides, the church has a real spiritual enemy. That oftentimes God will allow suffering and trials throughout our life to awake us from a spiritual slumber because we have for too long directed our gaze away from him, directed our eyes away from Christ, and he will allow things to happen in our life so that way we would refocus our attention. And this, friends, is the mercy and grace of God. We learn in Romans 1 that God's wrath on this side of heaven is actually him pulling away and saying, oh yeah, go ahead, that's fine. You, you don't want me? Fine, go ahead. You can, you can have that. That's actually God's wrath, just giving you over to your debased mind, giving you over to what you want. That is the wrath of God. God introducing sin and suffering and trials in our lives so that way we would redirect our attention is the grace of God. We have to see it that way. Okay, the people of God understand now that they're going to need something to win this battle. They are weak, they are weary, they're hungry, they're thirsty, and here comes this freshly fed army, swords, camels, ready to go to town. They have nothing. So they, long story short, God has their attention now. All right, let's keep going. Chapter 17, verse 9 through 11. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So I'm not sure if, if Joshua thought in this moment, like, yeah, right, I'll go fight while you go up on the top of a mountain and hold up a stick. I'm not sure if he thought that. I know I would have. It kind of seems like a bad deal here, like a little bit unfair. When, on my, that same boat that I was on uh, at the beginning of my Coast Guard career, uh, it, was, it was a buoy tender. So in other words, we would pick up these gigantic buoys out of the ship channel, and they weighed several tons each, and we would... Uh, scrape all of the like nasty buoy critters off. It was gross. And then we would have to replace the entire 90-foot shot of chain, attach another six-ton rock to it, and then put it back over. There's a lot of really, like, really hard, dangerous manual labor in the Coast Guard for me for a couple years. Now, there's one caveat, and there's one hack to the system. If you knew what you were doing, so the best way to get out of this was to do one of two things. Was to either get quartermaster of the watch qualified, which means while everybody else was working buoys, you were working the radar in the bridge in the air condition. Now that qualification is very difficult, but, but it's one way to get out of it. Another way is to take the mid watch. And what that means is when you're on a boat and you're underway, Somebody is up at all hours of the time, and they're on four-hour rotations. Mid-watch is from midnight to 4 a.m. Now, the reason why people want to get that is because you get off a of watch at 4 a.m., and you get to sleep until 12 p.m. So work starts at 7, you're halfway done through the day. 
you could tell I know a lot about this. A lot of people are like, we would pull into port, and like in New Orleans, and they want to get off the boat and go hang out. And I'm like, oh, it's okay, it's great. I'll take mid-watch. We're good. I, I don't need to get off the boat. But those are the one or two ways that every time somebody would come in here and they would, they would figure out that if, if they got quartermaster of the watch qualified, they wouldn't have to do it, you would, you would see it. As, you, as soon as they got there, they figured out they could do it. They would be like, hey, yeah, I'm thinking about a... Thinking about getting qualified quartermaster of the watch, what do you think? And we're like, oh, yeah, I bet you really want to, don't you? I'm sure you do. While we're over here laboring and slaving, you want to sit up there in the air condition eating eggs and bacon in the morning. I'm sure you do. I, I, I don't know if Joshua felt that way. But what we do know is that he was obedient. That's what we do know. We do know that he obeyed and that he put together a team. And we see a powerful picture here in the moment of God's people. And we see two different battles happening here. We see um, a dual battle, a physical battle and a spiritual battle. And we have to remember as believers that we are going to have times in our life where we have to stand up for what we believe in. We're going to have a physical fight. And also, simultaneously, we do not fight against, principal, uh, against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers of darkness. There is both a physical reality of what we must do, and a spiritual reality that we cannot escape. There is a dual battle going on here, and we have one as well. We must fight for what we believe, but we must trust the Lord. Moses told Joshua to go choose some men and go fight. He selected his team, and he went. So that means as Christians, we will not escape this life without having to fight for what we believe in. I know there are a lot of you in this room that hate confrontation, but if you abandon the call to stand up and fight for what you believe in, you will be ravaged by the enemy. It's just how it works. You're going to have to confront things that would threaten your God and threaten your life with your God. There is no escaping it. You will have to stand up for what you believe in. For some of us in the room, we just need to join the fight. For some of us, we need to acknowledge that there's a fight that's actually happening and we need to be a part of it. That we can't just sit in the back and allow either our souls or the souls around us, and if you have a family, our children's souls to be ravaged. We cannot do it. We must not allow it. We must be like Joshua and be courageous and step into the fight. Some of us need to join the fight. However, there isn't just a physical fight. There's a spiritual one. So while Joshua used physical weapons, Moses used spiritual weapons. Moses went to the hillside and raised his shepherd's staff, which was a symbol of God's presence, his promises, and his power. Moses' actions demonstrated that he was dependent on God for the victory. The battle was not Moses's. The battle was not Israel's. The battle was the Lord's. The Lord had arranged it, and the Lord would see victory. That's what Moses was doing. Notice that it was not by physical force alone that the battle was won or lost. Every time Moses raised his hands, the people won. When he lowered his hands, the people lost. This, there was, it's almost like a video game. It's weird. It's like Moses is up there with, a, with his staff moving it like a joystick. If he, if he lowered it, they lost. If he raised it, they won. It's incredible. There is... It is very clearly that this battle was not Israel's. This battle was the Lord's. 
Some might argue that this was really not prayer because the text never says that Moses was praying. But when you look at the scope of Scripture, it's clear that that's what Moses was doing. He was interceding through prayer. In Exodus 9, when we, uh, you see this, Moses talking to the Pharaoh, and there's thunder, there's hail, there's all kinds of storms going on, and Pharaoh said, I've had enough of it. Will you ask your God to stop? And Moses says, when I have left the city, I will extend my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth belongs to Yahweh. In Psalm 63, David says that he will lift up his hands in praise to God. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul called everyone to pray, lifting up holy hands. So the text might not say prayer, but it's clear that Moses was depending on God for victory by interceding in prayer for the people. It's clear. So for us, we need to remember that we may fight like Joshua, but we must also cry out to God in prayer like Moses. Some of us need to join the fight. Some of us don't need to be called into the fight. Fighting is like a second nature to us. Some of us don't need to join it. Some of us need to stop and say, God, only you can win it. Some of us need to stand up out of the seat and start walking. Some of us need to slow down and to trust the Lord. In our battles... We must fight like Joshua, but we must also be willing to hold up our hands to God's throne and say, it is out of my control. God, you're the only one who can do something. We must go to the throne of grace and say, God, help me. That's the only way forward. Thomas Watson said it this way. He that leaves off prayer leaves off the fear of God. A man that leaves off prayer is capable of any wickedness. When Saul had given up inquiring of God, he went to the witch of Endor. And we'll we'll talk about Saul a little bit more in this moment, but there's a moment in the book of 1 Samuel where God rejects Saul as king and removes his spirit from him. Because in that moment, Saul decided he was no longer going to, to obey the Lord, and he was just going to do things on his own volition. He decided, I'm going to take control of my own hands. Saul did not have a problem getting into the fight. He had a problem with acknowledging that it was not his fight. It was the Lord's. And so what did he do? He ended up going to, uh, I think it's in chapter 28, going to this, this witch that he had heard about that was able to, to, that was able to basically communicate the same way that Samuel could, could communicate. Uh, the only thing she did, though, was that she was a witch that summoned dark spirits. So instead of going to God, he went to a witch, which is a weird trade-off because he still, even when going to the witch, he acknowledges that it's not him. So why go to something that's proven, fallible, and dark, and not just go to the light? Because I, I think that there, like I've said this morning, is a real enemy that doesn't, necessarily want you to think that you're the best or to think that your friend is the best or that this political standpoint is the best. Honestly, the the enemy doesn't care at all. The only thing that the enemy cares about is that you don't say that God is the best. So it doesn't matter what it is. It could be church. It could be politics. It could be your schooling. It could be your family. It could be anything. 
as long as it's not God, he's happy. So we have to remember that we have a real enemy that hates God, that hates you, that hates the church. And he will do anything to, detra- to distract you from, from this, even if it means him getting you into the fight and you just fighting on your own. So we also need to remember that just as we can't fight this battle alone without the Lord, we also cannot fight this battle without the church. We need other brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's look at verse 12. It says this, But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. What's interesting is that Moses anticipated this weakness of his own flesh and asked Aaron and Hur to go with him on the hill. Could have been very easy for Moses to just say, like, everybody go fight. We need as many hands as we can get. I'll go on to the top of the hill. But Moses knew he was going to be weak, knew that he couldn't do this alone, knew that he needed those that were not just around him, but those around him that knew him. Those that knew Moses' faults. Those that knew Moses' stubbornness. Those that knew Moses' sin proclivities. He needed people that knew him. Moses had the self-awareness and humility to know that accomplishing this feat wasn't going to be done alone. Obedience to God's command was going to take those around him, encouraging him to continue on. Moses grew, as we see in the text, faint of heart and weary from holding the staff. Just as a caveat, you'll see no mention of Joshua getting weary. There's no mention of the army starting to get tired. So, so we don't know why Moses got weary. We don't, we don't. So it, it could be just be that he's up there a really long time. But if that's the case, then that means God's people are also fighting for a really long time. So shouldn't they get weary also? But there's no mention of it. There's no mention. I think it's interesting because there's only mention of Moses. And if you're anything like me, what's obvious here is that spiritual matters always tax us differently than physical matters do. The more spiritual any service or effort is, the more apt we are to grow weary. I mean, genuinely, like right now as we speak, I can't be the only one thinking about lunch after this. I mean, is it just me or every time that you go to pray, do you all of a sudden remember everything you have to do? Like you sit down at your desk, like for me, happens on a Monday. I'll sit down, I'll get to my desk, I'll start to think about what I have to do, all the things that I promised people I was going to meet with, all the things that I have to accomplish this week, and I, I'm just blank. It's a Monday morning, got the Monday morning blanks. But I'm like, okay, well, you know what? I'll just, uh, I can't think of what to do. I'll, I'll go pray. And as soon as I, I mean, not sooner than me sitting in that chair right there, bowing my head to pray, everything comes up. Everything. Miracle. Because I think that the enemy would love nothing more than for me to be busy and not to be praying. Spiritual matters have a different way of taxing us than physical ones do. Moses knew that he needed others. 
He also knew that he needed others that knew him well. Just like Moses, we should be just as willing to have others around us to help us in the midst of spiritual warfare, times of trial, and physical affliction in our lives. It is to our own hurt when we fail to rely on others in the church to assist us. It's not to our gain. I know, I know some of us don't like the idea of looking weak, of looking vulnerable, of looking like we need help, but the truth is, is that we were never meant to be alone. That's why in the garden, when God said, it's not good that man be alone, it wasn't just about marriage, it was about the church in general. While he may be talking about Adam's bride, and he may not be good, we are the bride of Christ. So we cannot be alone. We were never meant to be alone. We are to be one with Christ and one with each other. It is both horizontal and vertical. To walk away from that at the expense of, looking, of not looking vulnerable or not looking weak is only an exercise in futility and, if I had to be frank, an exercise in pride. We have to remember that we have a real enemy and we have to remember that we are fallible and that at times we can be our own enemy. Imagine what would have happened if Moses had refused help. Israel would have lost. They would have died that day. Because Moses would have gotten too weak, he wouldn't have been able to acknowledge, he, he, didn't, he wouldn't have acknowledged that he needed the help, he needed people around him to hold him up when he couldn't do it on his own, his arms would have failed, the people of God would have died. If Moses did not acknowledge his own fallibility, if he didn't acknowledge his own weakness, the church would have lost. People of God would have lost. The only way in our time that the kingdom advances is through the church. The church is God's plan A for the kingdom advancing. There's no other plan. That is God's plan, the church. And the church is not this building. The church is God's people. The people of God Uniting together with one common vision to make the, at least for us, to make the gospel unignorable in our city. That is what we unite around. That is what we rally around. And having people around us when we grow weary to say, you can keep going, brother. You can keep going, sister. Lift up your drooping eyes. For those around us when we can't walk to lift us up and keep walking. That's what we need. Ecclesiastes actually says, woe to him who does not have someone who can lift him up, who does not have a brother around them that can lift them up. Woe to him. It is no, it is no surprise to me that today is also Pentecost Sunday when the church began. We celebrate today, Pentecost Sunday, that the church began with the Spirit uniting people that once at the Tower of Babel, their languages were confused and they were spread out across the world and in an instant they were brought back in and could hear one voice again because of the Spirit. The Spirit infused the church, the church began and it shot off like a rocket. And it only happens by being unified by this message of the gospel. It's the only way that that happens. And for us, practically what that looks like is that we need to have people, we need to be a people that are surrounded by those that know us. We need to be known by other people. Our faults, our failures, our bends, what our defaults are. Like if we're left alone, what are we, where do we go? People need to know that. 
So that way when we're not walking in obedience or our head starts to droop or our arms start to fail, they can come up alongside of us and lift us up. We need to be known. I hate using the word never. In fact, it's, a, it's actually a rule in our marriage that we are never allowed to say never or always. Uh, you never take out the trash. Really? Never? I never do? You're always late. Always? I'm never on time. I'm always late. We don't do that because always and never always cause problems. So we, it's a rule for us. But I can confidently say you will never walk in joy, peace, and with endurance without being known by others in the church. Being 14 years in ministry, I can confidently say that. It's how God has lined things to be, and I've never seen it happen apart from it. You, you simply will not make it. Surely, there is nobody in this room that thinks that they are more powerful than the enemy on their own. Surely, there's no one in this room that thinks they can outsmart God, how God has clearly designed things to work, as in being known by others and being in a church. And surely, there's nobody that can defy the entire history of how church and the Christian life was supposed to go. Surely, there's no one in this room that thinks they can outsmart the enemy, outsmart God, and outsmart history. My guess is that no one can do that. Guys, I have to tell you that the attempt at living life as a solitary Christian is not a new endeavor. There are spiritual casualties from brothers and sisters that line all of existence. By trying to do that, it just will not happen. You need others. You need other believers that can point you back to Jesus, not give you good advice, give you good news, not tell you how to make things better, but to point you to a better God. You need people around you that can know you and can do that. You need people who can come around you and hold up your drooping arms so that you can remain obedient and dependent on God to win the battle. Taking time to relax will not work. I'm literally, as soon as I'm done preaching here, we'll be doing Providence Road Academy. Directly after that, I'm going to our annual trip to Canyon Lake for five days and it's going to be a blast. It's going to be fun. We're going to have a great time. I will be able to relax, turn my phone off, not bring my laptop, all the good things. It's not going to work. It's not going to solve the problem. You have to be known not just by God, but you have to be known by others. We cannot do this alone. All right, verse number 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This is the first time that we see this idea of write this down. God has given us his scriptures and in this moment he's giving a word to his people, showing them and us who he is, what he has done, and who we are. God wanted his people to remember what happened that day. God wanted his people to remember that when they were failing, he succeeded. When they thought he left, he was always there. When they thought they were beat, he claimed the victory. He, God wanted his people to forever remember that. So he inscribed it on a, on a stone. Why write it down? 
Because here's the thing, Joshua was certainly going to remember that day. Moses certainly was going to remember that day. And up until that point, everything had been an oral tradition. You simply tell of the stories of the things that have happened to you. These men were not going to forget the story. So why write it down? Well, I mentioned Saul earlier in 1 Samuel 15 because Saul was told by Samuel to go and defeat the Amalekites. And Saul was given very specific instructions. Remember, God was planning to completely and utterly, literally use that word, utterly blot out the Amalekites. As in, have you ever seen a document that's been redacted? You can't see anything. That information just, it might as well not exist. might as well not be there. God wanted to blot out the Amalekites for what they did. So when God gives specific instructions to Saul, regardless of how terrible they might be, we answer to one king, one master. And Saul was given very specific instructions to get rid of everyone. Of all ages, men, women, children, goats, calves, horses, everything. Saul goes up, goes to the Amalekites. He gets rid of everyone but one person. He doesn't kill the king, Agag. And he takes all of the greatest uh, and best animals. So the fattened calves, the goats, the, the ones without blemish. He took those and he didn't do what God said. And he thought he did something great because he came back to Samuel and God goes to Samuel and say, hey, your boy didn't do what I, what I told him to. And he goes to Samuel. Samuel's really frustrated. And Saul says, well, I was just going to take these to give a sacrifice to the Lord. And that's where you get this really like famous line. I'm sure if, you're, if you've been a believer for long, you would have heard this. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, it says this. Samuel's talking to Saul. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than that of the fat of rams, as if God needed anything, as if God needs our sacrifice. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Doing what God has commanded you to do is better than you sacrificing for him and being disobedient. As in, God doesn't work on some bartering system. Well, God, if I just tithe more a little this month, then you'll let me get away with this, right? No, it doesn't work that way. God has called us to be obedient, to walk in his statutes, in his commands, God's words were important for us, important enough for us that he wrote them down. And his words must be the center point that we constantly run back to. When we want to understand if something is true, we must first say, what does the Bible say? We have to be there or we will stray away from being obedient. The only way to walk in this kind of obedience is to direct our eyes back to God and his word. That's why God said, Write this down. Write this down in a book as a memorial. It's important that we acknowledge that the only way that we can remain centered and remember what God has done for us, remember who he is, 
is by turning to his word. Okay, last bit of text. Verse number 15, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have a war with Amalek from generation to generation. So this phrase, the Lord is my banner, that, that banner, it, it is a military rallying point. In other words, when the people of God are scattered, they have the banner to look to, go back to, and remember what they're suppo- where, where they're supposed to go to. They remember we are God's people, and he is for us, and he will fight. That is what a banner means. It's meant to signify who we are, what's happened, and what's going to happen. And if we get lost, we look for the banner, we go back to it. And so for us as believers, Christ is where we come back to. Christ is our banner. The Lord is our banner. Banners for them and us are memorial announcements of what we want to be known for. Sports teams hang up banners to memorialize their victories. Banners are used by companies to promote their phrases, their mission statements, their vision statements. Moses says, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is what we want future generations to remember when they think of victory. The Lord is who we exalt. That's the point of this memorial. That's the point of this banner. That's the point of all of this happening where Moses can point back and say, for for generation to generation, when they encounter the Amalekites and people that are standing against them, they will turn around and look at this altar and see that God has the victory. The Lord is the one who goes in battle before us. And when we say with Moses, the Lord is my banner, Christ is my banner, we get to experience it all the same. Isaiah 11.10 says this, speaking about Christ on the day to come. On that day, the root of Jesse, who's Christ, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will seek him and his resting place will be glorious. When we see Christ as our banner, not only do we know that the, that the victory is sure, but we can rest knowing that he's for us. That he would never allow something in our life to so utterly destroy us because he's so busy utterly destroying those that would hurt us. God has his own agenda and he will He will absolutely fight for his people. And to allow the Lord to be the banner over our heart allows us to remember that any other banner, ourself or anything else you want to put there, it will not work. It will tatter, it will rip, it will fade, but the Lord's never does. Christ is the one who is battling on our behalf and interceding for us. Christ is Joshua who fights the enemies for us and Christ is Moses who stands on the hill and intercedes before God. Moses grew tired and the strongest arm in the room will fail if being held long out. But God's hand, Christ's hand, is outstretched still to this day. So my question for you is this and I'll close. Where do you need to be obedient? Do you need to join the fight? Have you been sitting on the bench for too long and kind of watching everybody else do, do the, the Christian thing? 
Do you need to join the fight? Do you try to fight this battle without the Lord? Do you need to remember that this isn't your fight, but it's God's? Do you need to remember that fighting it without Christ is never going to work? Are you trying to do this? Are you trying to walk out your faith without others, without being known? If banners signify a rally and worshiping point, what does your banner say? My plea to you is that you would turn your gaze towards Christ and walk in obedience regardless of what that looks like. Be prepared to do whatever Christ would have for you. If you stand, I'll pray for us. Father God, we come before you today and we are so grateful that you're God whose victory is sure. That we don't have to be concerned with winning the battle on our own or feeling like we have to conjure up the strength to do it. But that you, God, on our behalf are strong. You, God, on our behalf will never grow weary. And so God, in the areas that that we have not walked in obedience, whether it's joining the fight, whether it's learning that it's your fight, or whether it's trying to do it alone. God, we ask that you would reveal the, those areas where we need to walk in obedience. We ask that you would give us the strength to do so because we can't do it apart from your spirit. God, we love you and we praise you. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.